Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello everyone, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today I'm speaking with Lainey Giles, the author of The Forgotten Flapper, book one in the Forgotten Actress series. Olive Thomas was a Ziegfeld Follies dancer and a silent movie star in the late 1910s. She married Jack Pickford, the younger brother of Mary Pickford, and she was not just a flapper, but the actress who introduced the label flapper in a film of the same name. In her day, she was considered one of the most beautiful women in Hollywood an assessment borne out by the photographs of her available on the Internet. And as we will discover during this interview, she was both a compelling and a flamboyant personality. When we meet Olive in the prologue, she has, shall we say, gone through some changes. She is the eye looking back. New York, New York, today. You know, it's really no fun haunting people who refuse to be afraid of you. When you say boo, they're supposed to scream. Not say, hi, Olive. Just so you know, I'm not one of those chain-rattling, doom-and-gloom ghosts. It's not my style. Instead, I rearrange the scenery and materialize for the folks who work here. Keeps them on their toes. I live at 214 West 42nd Street, New York, New York. That'd be the new Amsterdam theater for you non-showbiz types. I used to perform here back in 1915. In my day, this was the place to be. Bright lights, hooch, and the girls of the Ziegfeld Follies. The most lavish musical review of its day, and I was there for it. See those fixtures up there? Those murals? Fancy, huh? Decades ago, this was the biggest venue in New York. I was just a dumb apple knocker from Charroy, Pennsylvania. The new Amsterdam was the most glamorous place I'd ever seen. I spent the happiest time of my life here, dancing, singing, and chatting with everyone. What a gay time we all had. Whether it was champagne and roses backstage, dancing till dawn at Bustanobis or Murray's Roman Gardens, dining on oysters Rockefeller at Delmonico's, or even the butter cakes at Child's, it didn't matter to me. I loved it all. And now, please join me in welcoming Lainey Giles. Hi, Lainey. I'm looking forward to talking with you today. Hi. How's it going? Uh, very good. Thank you so much for agreeing to the interview. Sure. Uh, let me start, as I usually do, by asking you to talk a bit about yourself and how you became a writer. Uh, I saw your on your website, your bio notes that you grew up in Austin, Texas, and were a big Nancy Drew fan. Uh, <laughs> you even wrote a Nancy Drew of your own. So was that your first foray into fiction? Uh, yes, uh, she was. Martha Newman was, was my Nancy Drew clone. And uh, being an artistic sort, I also had hand-drawn illustrations of Nancy and her friends. and. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I still have a copy of it. I, I can't speak to the quality of it, but. <laughs> That's great. How old were you then? I was about eight. But there was continual polishing of that up until about age 10 or so. So I was pretty proud of it. That's great. So how did you get from there to your first published novel, Love Lies Bleeding? Um, I was really, really into genealogy my whole life and uh, started researching my Smith family. Uh, I like a challenge. 
And uh, some of that was uh, going up to New York State when I was in Texas. It was south. I'm used to referring to up to New York when it's actually down to New York um, and did some research there. And I would love to go to the library and sit all day and look up obituaries in the newspaper microfilms. And when I did that, I ran across this story that was just, wow, I've got to write a novel about this. And I just happened to have all of this spare time after I moved to Canada where I couldn't work for about a year and a half. And so it was a perfect time to finish a novel, and that was what I did. So tell us a bit about that story, where it came from and how it developed. Uh, It was a uh, a story that had happened in 1916 in a little town in Illinois, and uh, a couple had gone out in their wagon, and um, the girl had died, and all it said at the time was that it was from an illegal operation. That was all that they said, but you can kind of guess what it was. And the guy was being indicted for murder, and I thought, you know, this would be really interesting. What if he was never caught? And so that was kind of how I took it in because I was in the Finger Lakes area and had fallen absolutely in love with it. It's so beautiful there. I transplanted the story to the Finger Lakes and uh, I actually, the the little town that my great, great, great grandfather was from and the family had settled, I incorporated that into the book as well. So that was how it originated. And it turns out to be a very um, current story. Uh well, yeah, 86. In way. <laughs> a lot of people were like, why'd you put it in 86? So it's like, well, the old lady that was in it had to still be alive, you know, from 1916. And that was the time period that I wanted to do it in. So that's kind of why I did that. Um, but yeah, one of my friends compared it to watching Titanic. That she thought, you know, the, the flash forward, flashback thing that I kept doing, she really liked that. So. So CPS Stories is your own imprint, right? What made you decide to self-publish this novel? Uh, 176 rejections. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> I, I was very idealistic. The, the first uh, Love Lies Bleeding was put out through a small e-publisher named Musa, and they have since folded. So I re-put that out uh, self-published. But this one I really had high hopes for, and I got really close a couple of times, had some, you know, some good nibbles. I had to revise and resubmit from one agent and got my heart broken one last time when I was at a writer's conference in 2014, and the, the agent was all over me. She was gushing, and I had never had a reaction like that. I thought, I've finally done it, you know, and I was so excited. And when I got back with her two months later, she was like, oh, yeah, I've been meaning to write you. It's just so depressing. <laughs> In the introductory letter that I had written, I said, you know, well, it's her ghost that's narrating the story and that she died tragically at 25. And it's like, well, I'm, I'm not sure what about that screamed lollipops and roses. But, you know, so after that, I was just like, you know what? I'm going to self-publish. Everybody else is doing it. Why not? And I determined that I was going to do it right. I wanted to really make sure that I dotted all my I's and crossed all my T's. And I found a mentor, which was really, really helpful. Um, I discovered a guy out there also writing Hollywood-based novels. His name is Martin Turnbull. Uh, He's got a, a series set at the Garden of Allah apartment complex 
in Hollywood in the about the 20s. His actually is a series that spans from like the 20s. I think he's up into the 50s now. And uh, I noticed that his stuff was published through CreateSpace. So I just emailed him out of the blue and said, hey, you know, you're writing about old Hollywood. I'm writing about old Hollywood. We should hang out. You know, we should, you know, talk and pick each other's brains and that kind of stuff. And he was like, yeah, 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 let's do it. And we're really good friends now. He's just been amazing. He gave me a lot of pointers. And so usually our books always pop up together. If you do an Amazon search or something, you know, they're sort of linked now, <laughs> which is good. It's, it's been a really, you know, a great sort of symbiotic relationship between our books. So I was really happy that I did that. So, um, I'm part of a, a co-op, a writer's co-op, and we publish together because um, I've done editing and production for years, and we have a graphic designer and other people. And so that's how we handle the technicalities of it. One of us does the typesetting, and one of us does the cover design and so on. Uh, do you all do all of that yourself? Yes. Um, my husband has offered some graphic services, and when I have to go in and do some edits, I find an error or things like that in my create space document, he'll go into um, it, some software that I don't know as well, and he can fix them for me. And he did my, my redone cover for Love Lies Bleeding when I re-released it. So he, he comes in pretty handy. <laughs> <laughs> and yet the writing partners on your site are all furry. And I can sympathize because my cats, you know, regularly come and decide to take part in the interviews. They become yeah, and sort they, of a they thing. make great paperweights, too. Yes, they do. And they just love to get in front of the screen. <laughs> <laughs> do you also exchange works in progress with humans? I mean, you mentioned the one friend, but are, are you like um, critique partners at this point? Uh, yeah, I belong to a really great forum at a, uh, a website called AbsoluteWrite, W-R-I-T-E dot com, uh, and have made some really good friends through that. I've belonged to the site for about oh, seven years now, I guess, and uh, I've got a really great friend in California, and she and I have, have done some back and forth. I've got a third cousin in Illinois from the aforementioned Genealogy Project who's also done some great work beta reading for me and I have a really good writers group here in town and some of their feedback is just it blows me away some of the stuff that they catch that I didn't even notice so you know it's only about a chapter at a time that they can look at because you know we have to read other people's stuff but it yeah it really is helpful that's great so that brings us to the forgotten flapper which I have to note I did not think was depressing I don't know where that comes from I mean it's True that it follows her through a large, uh, Olive Thomas through a large part of her life, but most of that life she's having a really good time. In fact, she's uh, she's she's a party girl, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. When when the inevitable did happen, I wanted people to really miss her because she was so fun loving, and I wanted that to really come off on the page. I wanted people to think, yeah, she's really having a good time. She's having fun. She's living her life. She's curious. She wants to know about everything, and you know she'd rather be dancing and drinking than pretty much anything else. So, <laughs> so um, like Love Flies Bleeding, uh, the second novel is also set in the 1910s, or at least part of it. I mean, part of Love Lies Bleeding is set in the 1910s, and this is mm-hmm. um, this is entirely set um, between uh, Olive's youth and uh, 
her time in the movies. So what drew you to her and made her made you want to make her the subject of a novel? Well, uh, in about 2009, I read this book called Loving Frank by a lady named Nancy Horan. And it was one of these biographical fictions that just, it was so vivid. It leaped off the page. And I thought, that's what I want to do. I want to just research the living bejesus out of every fact. And I wanted to find a subject uh, like that. It was, this was about Frank Lloyd Wright and his, uh, the architect and his mistress. And I thought, I, I want to find a subject that I can really bring to life like that. And I started thinking back, okay, what was it? Well, at the time I was watching a lot of um, old silent film documentaries. There was a guy named Kevin Brownlow who interviewed a lot of these silent film stars when they were still alive. And he did a a documentary series back in about 1979 about Hollywood. And I was watching these and I was like, yeah, I should find a Hollywood star. And then I remembered uh, when I was about 12, I had checked a book called Hollywood Babylon out of the library. And anybody who knows anything about old Hollywood knows that most of the stuff in this book is utter nonsense. This guy made a lot of it up. But it had really juicy details, you know, salacious. It had really cool old black and white photographs. And my favorite chapter in that was about Olive and how she died. And, you know, this, she was involved with Jack and it was juicy. And, and I thought, that's it. Olive needs to be my subject. So I started kind of reaching around saying, okay, are there any books about her? Are there any books about Mary Pickford? What all can I use for, for sources? And so I just sort of took it from there. Um, yeah, that's great. Now, you mentioned that she's a ghost, or um, and when we and it, we know from the introduction that I read that she is a ghost haunting the new Amsterdam Theater in New York. And apparently this is a real rumor that dates mm-hmm. from the 1950s or so. Uh, I can imagine it being irresistible to a writer. It would certainly be irresistible to me. But... Is there a particular advantage to you as the author to telling um, Olive's story from this vantage point? Well, when I started off the book, I was just doing a basic third person, you know, taking her from birth to death kind of thing. And it was so boring. It just (laughs) laid there. And I was, how can I fix this? How can I make this lively? How can I do what I want to do with it? And, I was reading at the time I was reading a book called Bob Hair and Bathtub Gin by a lady named Marion Mead about some writers in the twenties. And I started realizing, Oh, it's the slang. That's, you know, I'm writing this as a 20th century college educated woman. And I need to be writing it. You know, I need to be, you know, having the slang and I should have all of telling her own story. So I switched to first person and it started leaping off the page. But the problem with that was her death and the circumstances around her death and her ghost are all so important to her story. I was like, well, yeah, how am I going to do this with the first person? I was like, duh, (laughs) have her ghost tell the story. It'll still be first person and it'll serve all the purposes that I need to have in novel. So that was when it just kind of went. Yeah, and it took it over the top. (laughs) 
That's great. Um, so you've already told us a little bit about her as a character and why you were writing about her. She um, she starts out by growing up near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, she works in a shop. She gets married. She gets divorced. And she goes to New York. And uh, she's working in a shop just as a, you know, a clerk. When uh, out of nowhere, she, well, maybe not out of nowhere because she, did, she had to enter, but she wins a beauty contest. Um, so tell us a little bit about the beauty contest and uh, how that takes her to the attention of Siegfeld, of um, Siegfeld Folly's fame. And I think you have a passage also that you're going to read about her life as a Folly. Okay. So supposedly the, uh, the contest was like the most beautiful girl in New York, and it was sponsored by one of the newspapers there. And there were three judges or so. And the winner would get their portrait painted by uh, one of the uh, really famous artists working at the time. And uh, I think they got some sort of um, money reward as well. And so she ended up sort of falling into becoming an artist's model. And instead of just being a shop girl, her face was being recognized around New York and she had a little bit of money from the from the modeling. So uh, one of her artists supposedly she disputed this. So it's it's part of her legend is that she got this letter of introduction from the artist to Ziegfeld, and it may not have happened that way, but it worked for the purposes of the novel. So I went ahead and I went ahead and used that. Um, and you wanted me to read a little bit of that? Okay, so one of her artists here says, um, Ollie, are you interested in the theater by any chance? Who isn't? I said as casually as I could. But my insides were like a bottle of champagne someone had just shaken and uncorked. Why do you ask? I thought so, Mr. Fisher said. Mr. Ziegfeld over at the New Amsterdam Theater is a friend of mine. The new season is beginning soon. I could write through a recommendation if you like. You scratch my back and I scratch yours, huh? I teased him, barely able to catch my breath. If I can help you, I will. You know that. He took his pencil and poked me in the nose with it playfully. You, my dear, can knock this town on its inflated backside. One look at you and Broadway will be reeling. Mr. Fisher turned to a small writing desk, pulled up a chair, and penned a short letter to Mr. Ziegfeld, recommending his favorite model, Miss Olive Thomas, as addition to the Follies. Folding it over, he handed it to me. Good luck, Ollie. Thank you. I kissed him on the cheek before leaving, then swept out into the street, knowing I had to try the new Amsterdam then and there. I hopped the next train to 42nd Street and had to ask directions. A woman in a velour coat with a lynx collar was happy to oblige. Oh, you just head that direction toward Longacre Square, then she stopped herself. Oh, silly me. Sorry. It's been Times Square for a few years now. I can never quite remember. See that tall building there, the one with the skinny rectangular tower? That's the Times building. Head toward it and you're almost there. The hustle and bustle was exactly what I'd come to New York to see. In some ways, it was much like Pittsburgh. Cars and wagons and people and chaos. But it was more than that. It was exciting. It was glamorous. I needed to be here. And I could sense it. It was big and important. Exactly what I'd been looking for. Theaters and their posters were everywhere I looked. Margaret Anglin was starring in a light comedy called Beverly's Balance at the Lyceum. And an all-star cast was featured in Trilby at the Schubert with Wilton Lackey as Stengali. There was a line out the door at the Liberty to see a new flicker called Birth of a Nation. Giant billboards six stories high proclaimed the merits of Michelin tires and Eid Scout pills. 
horseless carriages chugged and backfired down 42nd Street, dodging a plodding nag and his driver at the reins of the dependable ice wagon. As I approached the New Amsterdam, I glanced up. The tall, narrow building with the fancy front gloated above me, and the excitement pulsed in my ears. A curved arch flanked by columns greeted visitors, and an elaborate arcade below displayed the theater name surrounded by lights. A sign proclaimed that the New Follies was opening in a week. I pulled the door open and gasped at the lobby, all sculptures and murals and thick pile carpeting. A hulking man in a double-breasted suit and a homburg with a flashy red feather approached me. Can I help you, miss? The stage door is on 41st Street. I'm not a dancer. I'm here for Mr. Ziegfeld. Everyone's here for him. What do you want with him, doll? His toothache wiggled as he spoke. <clears throat> a job. Help me out. He don't see nobody on Tuesdays. Please? I made a special trip across town. I've got a letter from Mr. Harrison Fisher recommending me. I reached in my bag for it and waved it so he could see for himself. Harrison Fisher, the artist? You don't say. He glanced at me like he might recognize me from one of my covers, scratched his head and grabbed the letter. Give me a minute. Don't lose my letter, I called after him. He retreated further into the lobby and I paced, waiting for him. It was filled with ornate moldings and curlicue sconces, surrounding me with warm light and the smells of freshly cut wood, paint, and canvas. Farther inside, a piano tinkled. Pretty girls in street clothes or lavish costumes stood and chatted. Others hurried to and fro. The big man ambled over to me again and gestured for me to follow him. He escorted me into an office, and behind a desk covered with papers sat Mr. Ziegfeld. He held into a gold-plated telephone he held in one hand. In the other, he clutched a stubby cigar. Another gold phone sat at the ready on his desk, and on a table in the center of the room sat a bronze bust of Ziegfeld himself. His lush graying hair sprouted from a widow's peak, and a large hawk-like nose perched over a neat mustache. His dark eyes were intimidating, and he stared at me like a wolf sizing up dinner, not missing a thing. He wore a deep violet jacket with a diamond stick pin and the lapel, and his cologne was as bold as he was. Gotta go, Eddie. I'll call you back, he said, still watching me intently. His voice was deep and nasal. I thought at first he had a cold. Here's the girl I told you about, Mr. Z, the big man said. What'd you say your name was, honey? It's Olive. Olive Thomas. Thanks, Otto, Mr. Ziegfeld said. Then to me, he said, have a seat. He stubbed the cigar out in an ashtray. I eased down into the wooden chair before the desk, and Otto retreated after tipping his hat at me. So I see Harrison took a shine to you. We've already had auditions for the season, but I had a girl drop out, and I like the way you look. So this could be your lucky day. Where are you from? Charleroi, Pennsylvania, originally, I said. Is that anywhere near Philly? No, sir, Pittsburgh. How tall are you? I think about five foot three, five foot four inches. Can you sing, dance, anything? I'm not sure. I haven't had any training, if that's what you mean. He rolled his eyes and turned back to his phone. But I love to dance, Mr. Ziegfeld. I dance every chance I get. I'll do anything for this job. Anything. He narrowed his eyes and looked more closely at me for a moment. Pull your skirt up. Excuse me? I said, pull your skirt up. I need to see your legs. You don't expect me to hire you without seeing the entire bill of goods, do you? For a minute, I thought he wanted something else, if you know what I mean. But at that moment, I frightened myself a little. I would have given it to him. Oh, I raised my skirt a bit so he could see my calves higher and stand up. Mr. Ziegfeld, I... 
Do you want the job or not, Miss Thomas? I rose and planted myself next to the chair, then hiked the skirt the extra few inches. Now stand up straighter and smile. I flashed my teeth for him and turned my head a bit like I did for my artist. Very nice. I'm sure we can find a spot for you in the back, he said, gesturing for me to sit down again, which I did. You can be an extra, at least until I figure out what to do with you. We might be able to move you up depending on how you work out. We'll start you off at $50 a week. How does that sound? I'd been leaning forward and I almost fell off the chair. It sounded pretty good if you want to know the truth. I needed a cigarette. That's great. <laughs> He's quite the mogul, isn't he? <laughs> yep, that he is. So I think it's fair to say that Olive doesn't sit quietly in the background being an extra and sewing tights. So she makes quite a splash as a folly girl, Folly's girl. Yeah, she, uh, she ended up getting promoted. And uh, I think a little through her affair that began with Sigfield, but he promoted her to the Midnight Frolic, which was up on the, uh, in the, on the roof of the New Amsterdam. And the girls wore much skimpier clothes than they did downstairs. And it was a lot more risque and there was a lot more money being doled out as far as, uh, you know, tips to the girls and, and uh, roses and jewelry and whatnot backstage. So that was quite a coup for her. So uh, how does she end up in Hollywood then? I'm sorry? How does she end up in Hollywood? How did she end up in Hollywood? Uh, She made a visit out. I'm not sure when her first visit was exactly. Uh, I have her going out with two friends of hers. Uh, Actually, uh, three friends. Sorry. (laughs) It's been a while since I wrote this. Um, And they go out and they stay at the Hollywood hotel and they're eating out in Santa Monica and they go out to dinner on the pier. And that is where she meets Jack. And so their relationship is what I think draws her back to Hollywood. She wants to be where he is initially. And then she gets signed to triangle pictures and that is her, her first big break. So that would be her, her Hollywood introduction. So Jack is Jack Pickford. Uh, <laughs> and I think most people have heard of Mary Pickford, but not her younger brother, Jack. So tell us about him. What was his story? Bad news. <laughs> he's a, a spoiled rich boy. Uh, he's always basically had everything given to him his whole life. And uh, it just, their relationship was, uh, people have compared them to like, kids playing house. They were both immature. They were both, and they had bad habits. They drank, they drank drugs, you know, and I think a lot of it was probably very physical. You know, imagine your sort of puppy love high school type crushes. You know, a lot of it is very physical. It's very based on physical attraction, that sort of thing. And I don't think either of them were mature enough to really be able to handle a relationship as serious as the one that they were in. Sadly, Um, they did love each other, I think, but it was just, it was an unhealthy kind of love. So. But they do get married. They elope in 1916, uh, rather to 1917. Oh, I'm sorry. 1917. (laughs) They, they, there's some controversy about when they were married. They evidently fed a story to the media, uh, that they had gotten married when they actually hadn't. Someone did some research years later and found out that they had gotten married in 1917 and early, and they had used their birth names. 
So she was Oliveretta Duffy, and I think he was John Thomas Smith. So I had to sort of incorporate that confusion into the book somehow that they, you know, were feeding these stories to the media, but they actually had not gotten married yet. (laughs) Um, That's interesting. It usually stars do the opposite, right? They they get married and they don't tell people. Exactly. (laughs) So uh, Mary Pickford, as well as the rest of the family, is not too thrilled uh, with Jack's marriage. And part of it, I think you've indicated, is that they were both very immature. Was there more to it than that? I think a lot of it was the fact that back then, uh, Follies Girls, and especially Frolic Girls, that would basically be like your brother nowadays bringing home a stripper. You know, these girls had, they were in this risque show, and they were basically taking off their clothes for money, a lot of it. These men would, you know, throw money at them and that sort of thing, and they were wearing these incredibly skimpy costumes. And a lot of these women became sort of kept women, you know, they, they had these extremely rich men courting them and Mary's family is going by what they've heard. And, uh, a lot of, I think a lot of the the folks in early Hollywood, they had come from very poor backgrounds and they had managed to escape that. And they were now living in the lap of luxury. And I don't think they liked being reminded of where they came from. And I think Ollie did that you know, they had both of that. She was poor or had been poor and she was a showgirl and they were just horrified. Oh my God, look what you brought home, you know? And so there was definitely some attitude on both sides. And so I had, had to write, sorry, I'm sorry. I had to write this as a very sort of acrimonious relationship because it was sort of documented years, years after all has died, Mary kind of was saying, oh, yes, she was a very nice girl and they were very much in love. But you could tell it was all an act, you know. <laughs> and, uh, of course, Olive had had this rather um, messy breakup with Ziegfeld. I mean, she had had an affair with Ziegfeld and then right. it didn't go well. At least from her point of view. Right. He went back to his wife and they had a little girl. And so Ollie was not happy. <laughs> but also that plays into the, the narrative that you were just giving about her, um, you know, being the equivalent of a stripper or a loose woman of some kind. Right, right. So why do you think uh, Olive has been forgotten relative to Mary Pickford? Well, you have to consider the number, just the sheer number of films that Mary Pickford made compared to Olive. And the fact that there are so few silent films that are still with us compared to the number that were made um, because of the nitrate stock that they were made on years ago, it was such a fire hazard. And uh, for example, the Fox studios lost their entire uh, number of, of films that they had made when there was a big fire there. I can't remember, like 1930s, I think. And quite a few of the other studios also had fires. And so there are just so few silent films left. It's just that Mary uh, was more of an icon at the time because she was one of the first and she made more movies. So sadly, Olive is not as well known unless, you know, you're a classic or a silent film scholar. So, and that's too bad. And that's kind of why I named the book what I did is I didn't want her to be forgotten anymore. So hope I did my job. (laughs) 
She did make quite a lot of movies, though. I mean, she had quite a successful career. It seemed like she was working almost nonstop once she did get to Hollywood. Yeah, yes, she was. Uh, Unfortunately, like I said, there are so few of them left. I think I've seen three of them, and that's pretty much it. There are just, uh, I did see one uh, listed out on eBay the other day that I had not seen before, so I'm going to try to see if I can get a copy of that one. But um, when she did go out to Hollywood and she signed with Triangle, initially she wasn't working at first. They were sending her out on all these wacky publicity junkets. She'd be filmed firing a Gatling gun. There's a uh, very... uh, a photograph that I saw that was just hysterical of her riding an ostrich. <laughs> so I was like, I'm not sure what the story behind this is, but I have to write this scene because it looks hysterically funny. But yeah, after that, she was pretty much working constantly, um, practically a movie a month, I think. So um, you've mentioned the ostrich. You were going to read the passage about the ostrich, I think, because that was very funny. <clears throat> Let me see if my voice will hold out. <laughs> Okay, so this is uh, Los Angeles, April 1917. We're sending you to Pasadena for the day, Underwood said, to the Costan ostrich farm. Why am I going to an ostrich farm? I asked, afraid to hear the answer. We want to take some photos of you, of course. He said it like people did this all the time. Why? Ostriches are a novelty, that's why. They're fun and they make people laugh. The public loves them. But why me? You're available, Miss Thomas, and you're under contract. That means you do what Triangle tells you. There was a trolley line not far from the farm, but I decided to take a car anyway. Homer Weatherly, the still photographer, needed room for his equipment. He packed it all up, and then he and I made the drive through downtown, up Broadway to Pasadena Avenue, past squat palm trees and orange trees, and signs for bush gardens and the Annandale Country Club. A little further down the road, we saw a sign with cost and in big block letters. Miss Thomas, Mr. Weatherly, it's so nice to meet you, said a man named Mr. Jeffries, who greeted us when we arrived. He wore dun-colored breeches and a newsboy cap over his dark hair. Let's go see the aviary. The what? The aviary, ma'am. That's the bird's home. Mind your step, he said, pointing out the piles that looked like dirt near the path. Homer and I followed him through the grounds, but we were careful where we walked. Near a strangely shaped building... Deep inside the compound, we found several birds the size of giraffes. One of them stared at me in that funny sideways manner they have. He gazed at me with his huge, dark, long-lashed eyes and bobbed his pointy peaked beak. Then he cocked his head like he couldn't believe he had to pose for photos either. Miss Thomas, meet Leo. He's our male in this harem. Mr. Underwood wants some publicity stills of you riding him. <laughs> Excuse me, what? We have a little saddle we use and everything. Are you crazy? I can't ride an ostrich. Homer was too busy doubled over laughing to say anything. He's very tame, I assure you, Mr. Jeffrey said. Leo and I glared at each other doubtfully. He wasn't buying this either. Now, whatever you do, don't kick him inside like a horse. He doesn't like that. How about I not get up on him at all? I'll just pose standing next to him. Because the studio, Mr. Underwood, I mean, specified they wanted you riding him. Homer, do you know why we're doing this? Uh, You work cheap. No one else would do it. At least he was honest. (sighs) All right, I said with a sigh. What do I need to do? In Mr. Jeffrey's signal, a bird wrangler ran out of the aviary with some heavy cords and spoke softly to Leo. Another hand ran out with a small, stiff piece of leather and a step stool for me. 
the bird ruffled his deep black feathers at them like he was mightily offended, but allowed the first man to fit the bridle over his head. The second hand tossed the saddle over Leo's back and secured it underneath while the bird nudged him with his head. I assumed that was ostrich for that tickles. I can't think of anything more awkward than mounting an ostrich. The little saddle had no stirrups, so I pulled myself up with a prayer, hoping I wasn't showing my bloomers to every Tom, Dick, and Harry. I dangled my feet down both sides of Leo's round middle, and he reared up his head to nibble at my slipper. Ow! Leo, no, Mr. Jeffrey said, trying to project calm. He paused as I got myself settled, and Leo resigned himself to his passenger. Palmer set up his camera on the tripod in one side of the ring as Mr. Jeffries got Leo's attention. Leo, walk, he said calmly, backing up a little at a time. Then he turned and ambled over to the far side of the ring. It was the most bizarre feeling, this immense thing beneath me with his gawky waddle flexing his skinny neck. It looked like a dandelion stem after you blew the fuzz off the top. Leo veered to the right a bit, then stopped and tried to gnaw my shoe again. Cut it out, I said, wiggling my foot until he let go. I brought my foot back and accidentally jabbed him in the side. Leo took off like a shot, and I bounced along, holding on for dear life, grasping the reins and his pipe cleaner of a neck. He didn't enjoy that at all, doing his best to make me let go. To make things worse, Mr. Jeffries was baiting him, holding a lizard by the tail from across the ring, and that's what Leo was aiming for. He suddenly stopped short next to Mr. Jeffries and grabbed his prize, his head bobbing up and down in triumph. I almost tumbled over his neck to the ground. Homer, please tell me you got one good shot, I said, my voice wavery and weak. I'd almost peed myself. I think so, Miss Thomas. He gave me an A-OK sign. Thank God. Leo, don't take this personally, but I want to be on the ground now. Leo didn't mind. He was finishing his lizard. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, the life of a movie star. <laughs> I had so much fun writing that scene. And I, I read it when I was at the Santa Barbara Writers Conference a couple of years ago in a humor workshop, and everybody loved it. But they said, you know, we need a little more detail. We want to smell the barnyard. We want to really get a, you know, I'm like, guys, I have no idea where I'm going to smell ostrich turds around here. And they're like, oh, drive up to Solvang. There's an ostrich farm. And so, yeah, I, I drove to Solvang so I could go visit ostrich land so I could uh, really capture that scene. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we- I was going to ask you about research a little later, but since you've given me such a wonderful lead-in, <laughs> let me uh, mention that there's a lot of background about the early film industry in this book. It's delivered in a wonderfully understated way. I mean, it's 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 just, there's no information dumps or anything like that. I mean, it's just kind of seamlessly woven in with the story. But Thank what you. kinds of research did you do um, on Olive oh, and her times? God. What, and the what kind of research didn't I do? <laughs> I... I bought just about every book that I could find that dealt with Olive, Jack, Mary, the Ziegfeld Follies, Hollywood in general, maps of Hollywood, um, early California, early studios. Um, There was a really great book written by D.W. Griffith's old cameraman. His name was Carl Brown, and I think it was called Adventures with D.W. Griffith. He had a lot of the really intricate, you know, where Olive is, telling reporters, you know, oh, well, I can't do that. And 
because, you know, I have to stay within this line or they'll, they'll lose the bottom of my feet, you know, when they're shooting or this is why I have to wear this kind of makeup so that it shows up on camera like this or, um, you know, that sort of detail on, on filmmaking. And then uh, the newspaper articles that I consulted, I had about, I swear I had an entire notebook full of old newspaper articles that I printed so I could write them correctly. Uh, I was having constant timeline issues because of Olive and Jack's marriage. They were cross country constantly and one would be shooting in one city and one would be shooting in another city, you know, across the country. And so I'd write a scene and I'd have them together. And then I'd find a newspaper article where he was in New York and she was in California at the time. And I'm like, ah, you know, and my husband would hear me screaming from the other room. And he's like, timeline. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> so there were quite a few rounds of edits where I had to rewrite, you know, whole chunks of information just to insert a different character rather than the one that I had because that person wasn't there at the time. And I was trying to go for historical accuracy. And yeah, it was <laughs> a lot of research. So uh, were there things that you nonetheless had to make up? Oh, yeah. Yeah. There were a couple of characters that are in there just because it's for the flow of the story. Everything that happened actually happened. It is all historically accurate. But I did have to kind of, you know, just to, to nudge the story along. Like I gave her a maid and uh, a couple of the like Avis is the wardrobe lady at the Ziegfeld Follies. The small characters like that were made up, but not that much. Not that much. So even the part where she directed some scenes in Hollywood, that, that's actually in the yes. research somewhere? And that's yeah, that, uh, I found that in an old newspaper, or not a newspaper article, but a, uh, where she was being interviewed by one of the like photo play, one of the magazine uh, guys had had that story. And initially, when I was writing, just like a nincompoop, I had her being interviewed, and I thought, what are you doing? You need to have that actual scene in there. Don't have the interview happening, have her going out and scouting locations. So that was, that was how that came about. That was very impressive. I mean, she, I I don't know that she was ahead of her time, but it certainly seemed like it would be ahead of her time in 1917, 1918, whenever it was happening. Yeah, there were actually quite a few women working as they called them scenarios at the time rather than screenplays, but there were actually quite a few women who were working in those sorts of positions. And I think if she'd been a little bit smarter as far as book learning, she probably could have tried to become a scenario writer. I found one of the the movies that she worked on, she actually collaborated in the scenario with some other screenwriters. So, you know, she was really ambitious. She wanted to learn everything that there was to learn about the industry rather than just the acting part, which I think was really cool for, yeah, for a woman back in the day. Yeah, it does. I mean, it fits with her character too. I mean, she's very, she is a party girl, but she's very serious about her work in some ways. Yeah. She was very inquisitive. She just, there was so much that she wanted to learn and she actually brags to a reporter that, you know, in about an hour or two, she knew every man, woman, child, prop, you know, uh, on the lot and, and wanted to know the names of everything and how it worked and, and, 
she was just an amazing woman. It's so sad that she's been forgotten. It makes me really, you know, everybody knows who, knows who Mary Pickford is, but they don't know who Olive is. So I was determined I was going to correct that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you did. Um, so she's part of a series called the Forgotten Actress uh, series. What made you set out to, to write that? Well, quite frankly, I would say grief. When I was done with this book, I missed her. I'd been her, you know, when I, when I switched to first person, I'd basically been this woman for five years and I wanted to keep that feeling. I wanted to have more of that 1920s party hardy sort of, you know, flappery sort of feeling. So I was like, okay, uh, I should write another one of these who should be the first person that I do. And the first person that occurred to me was Clara Bow because, you know, when you think flapper, you usually think Clara Bow. And so that was, and then I was like, well, what about after that? What should I do after Clara? And then I just started, you know, thinking, okay, I should do this person. I should do this person. So I've got a you know list of like five or six and I have a little bit of progress made on each one. So yeah, <laughs> that was how it happened. So what would you like readers to take away from The Forgotten Flapper? I want people to rediscover Olive. I want people to uh, go find her films. I want them to read the book and and really feel like they know her because I I really tried to make it so that people could could get to know her through this book. And uh, I want, I'd like to think that if she was around today that she would be proud of it that she would think, yeah, you know, thanks. You really did a great job. And if I ran into her, she'd have me on the back and say, hell's bells, what a great book, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, so you mentioned that you're now working on this novel about Clara Bow, but also a bunch of other novels in the, the uh, Forgotten Actresses series. So how is that going? Do you work on them all simultaneously? It's, it's going really well. Uh, I just gave Clara to a couple of beta readers the other day. Uh, one is, She's like halfway through it. She's, oh my God, I love it. And she's from California. So she's enjoying the glimpse at old California, old Hollywood. Um, and I'm going to have, I've had my uh, writers group look at uh, two or three chapters now. And I also do have some others that are not just actresses. Um, I'm calling them the Crimes of Passion series. So I'm going to, I've started working on the first one of those. I have two others planned. Um, so, uh, uh, any chance that I get to work, I usually, before work when I can, um, usually for about an hour on my lunch break, in the evenings when I have time, and I'll go to the coffee house and, you know, sit when I have time and, and edit. So uh, I'm hoping to have the Clara book out in 2017. Great. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Great. I enjoyed our conversation. Me too. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I am C.P. Leslie, and today I've been talking with Lainey Giles about The Forgotten Flapper. You can find out more about her at http colon slash com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histvic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can also find out more about me, my website, and my books at blog.cplesley.com where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Since January 2016, I have added blog posts about books sent to me that for one reason or another don't fit into my interview schedule, so the blog is becoming an extension of this channel. 
Goodbye until my next conversation about new books in historical fiction.